this would be Sci-Fi Saturday Night, and I would be Mercedes Lackey. Welcome aboard! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. It's a new year in Area 51, and we're still here. Um, that made no sense. Of course, we're still here. This is where we record. I'm locked into my time capsule recording studio here in Area 51. We are the only podcast to guarantee to remain carbon neutral for the remainder of this fiscal year. At the end of the fiscal year, we are... Uh, going into contract negotiations with Area 51 management. Um, they've decided to raise the rent, and uh, the Air Force is not being good about it. So uh, we may be moving into Ellis Air Force Base. I'm not real sure about that. Anyway, um, this is another mask-mandated uh, podcast. Uh, the rate rights, they're rising and and and... I'm vaccinated. I'm going for another booster in about two or three weeks. I'm vaccinated to host the Dome. And this is episode 523, in which we talk about things that rattle your garbage cans in the middle of the night and why that keeps happening. Um, Joining me in the Area 51 broadcast facility tonight at the clickbait fact-checking wheel of fish and soylent green snack bar, it is our buddy, Captain Cam. Cameroon, how are you, buddy? Doing absolutely splendidly Iprish. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a weird week, huh? It was certainly a weird week, yes. Most I, uh, definitely. I, I mean Yeah, there was like no it was just just I don't know what it was. It was just you know, I kept looking around going, what day is it? What night is it? And then all of a sudden, it was time to record the show. We've we've got a bunch of different stuff going on on this week's show. Uh, we've got a bunch of different guests happening, a bunch of different stuff going on. Um, we should probably get to our first guest. What do you say? I think we've we've done enough lollygagging. I like that word. I haven't lollygagged since since the seventies. I, I once got arrested for lollygagging during a student demonstration in the 70s. I, I could so see that, Dobie. I could just so see you with the long, <laughs> long hair. For those of you that know Dobie, you'll understand why that's a joke. And <laughs> he didn't yeah, hear the name Dobie for nothing. And uh, just sitting there. You I was lollygagging. I was gagged. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Um, our first guest tonight has written the the quintessential book for our uh, 
for our show because it's a really cool book that takes place in 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 New York City, kind of twisted in what is I'm guessing possibly the first book in the Conrad Verse Chronicles called The Midland Affliction. Here to talk about that book is Alex Schwartzman. Alex, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity to lol again with you guys. <laughs> sweet, sweet. There we go. We're off to a good start, my friend. Is this the first book in the Conrad Verse Chronicles? It is indeed. I started out by writing a few short stories uh, about this character, but being a grifter and a manipulator that he is, he conned me into writing an entire series. And so this is the first book, and there will be at least two more. Uh, the second book is done, basically. It just just needs some more revisions and some, you know, massaging here and there. But uh, but the sequel is, is already written. I got to tell you, good deal. Good deal, because... Uh... Okay, first of all, I'm not going to give away, I, I am not going to give away any spoilers, but the last paragraph of the book went, ding, second book coming. <laughs> and it damn well better. And oh, by the way, there is a character you better bring back. I don't care how you do it. Better be magic, could be sorcery. I don't give a shit, but you better bring it back. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying anything else. <laughs> You're going to have to let me know after the show which character it is. I damn well am, my friend. I damn well am. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, – let's, let's talk about what makes New York City different in the Conradverse. Okay. So this is an urban fantasy, uh, and as such, of course, there's magic and monsters that had to – it has to be a part of the recipe of any urban fantasy series or book. And so the premise of the Conradverse is that uh, roughly one in every 30,000 people are born gifted, which means that they are able to cast spells and they're able to perceive magic. So if they walk down the street and they see a troll, they're going to know it's a troll. If we walk down the street and see that same troll, we might see like a large grub biker. Our, our brain is essentially going to go, okay, okay, you don't need to see this. Uh, I'm going to find a way to make it look like something you understand. And so it essentially manipulates the reality for the rest of us. So only the people who are either read in or who have the natural ability to, to cast and understand magic uh, or, or the gifted are able to interact with, with, with magic in, in, in the setting. And there were all different levels of magic within this universe, and there are all different groups within those levels. There, there are the good guys, there are the bad guys, there are the, the questionable guys. There's the old timers like the druids. The druids are still around after all this time. I thought that was so cool that the druids are still around. Uh, <laughs> just, just for me. Uh, but then there's the watch and the cabal. Uh, the watch is like the good guys, they watch over everything. So I thought they were kind of aptly named. Uh, the Cabal is, is the bad guys, uh, also rather aptly named. And and our main character, Conrad, is um, kind of a guy who works for the watch, but shouldn't be. That's right. So Conrad is a, a completely different creature altogether. 
uh, he is able to perceive magic, but he has no magic within him. He can't cast a spell on his own. All he can ever do is use artifacts enchanted by other people. So, uh, and this is not a spoiler, this is something that you find out of, uh, almost on page one. He considers himself to be this world sort of Batman. I mean, he has no superpowers, and he's just using all sorts of gadgets and his wits to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with monsters and people with real magic. And there's a term for that in the books. That's right. And th so he's called a middling, which is just one of many uh, derogatory terms that are applied to people like him. They're exceedingly rare, and they are not popular in this universe. Let me tell you, there's a lot of uh, various groups and, uh, and, and, and people who uh, sort of follow the older religions and, uh, and, 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 and uh, practices that just want to kill them outright. And so Conrad has to not only you kind of overcome this disability of having uh, this limitation, but he also has to hide the fact that he's a middling from just about everyone. So he's out there playing in the big leagues, even though he doesn't have the abilities that everybody else in the big leagues has. That's right. And part of the reason he does this is that he wants to get to the bottom of what's going on. Uh, he doesn't know why he is afflicted with this uh, with this middling thing, and he doesn't know why you know it exists in general. He doesn't like the rules of magic are only somewhat understood even by those who are part of the magic community, even though it's been around forever. But people who know kind of jealously guard the information, so so it's not it's not it's not very easily obtainable by somebody at his level. So he's out there butting heads with these monsters and wizards because he hopes that he can find some leads and become a real boy, essentially. He, he wants to become gifted. And he figures that in a world of magic, anything is possible, and he's just looking for opportunities. So Conrad really has this whole Pinocchio complex going for him throughout this whole book, where he's just trying to become the thing he's always wanted to be, which is a full-fledged member of the watch wizard warrior and i mean he really builds it up throughout the book because he really stands toe-to-toe -to -toe throughout the book with all these people he aspires to be a part of so my question my question then becomes this where did this story come from for you Oh man, I mean, there's a lot of different things that kind of went into that, um, several different aspects. First, I really wanted to play with a character who is dealing with the, this level of oppression and, uh, and, and, and people hating him for what he is, not for, not for what he chooses to be or what he chooses to do. Uh, and that's been important to me because I came to this country as a refugee. I've experienced, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced racism, I've experienced hate. And I've overcome that in, in my personal life. So it's something that is important to me on, the, on, the, on, the, on a more serious level. Of course, the book is fun and jokey and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't get really dark and dwell on these things, but it does manage to address them. Second, I have always been annoyed with how if you write science fiction, then you can hand wave mo the most important elements of it. How does your time travel work? Nobody talks about it. How does your faster than life, faster than light drive work? Nobody talks about that. 
But if you write a fantasy book, you better explain, you better write like a, 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 a PhD level paper on exactly how magic works in your universe. And that seems really unrealistic to me. So I wanted to play with a world where the rules of magic are a little bit more wild and they're not as well understood by people where it's not just an exact science and you can just parcel it out like, okay, if I use two milligrams of, of, of this potion, then this will, this will happen. No, it's, it's it, real life doesn't work like that and neither does the universe that I created. The interesting thing that I found about the book is that even though you dollop out across the book hints and facts about how the societies work and how they're structured and how they act and react, it's always very nothing. There's nothing contradictory there throughout the book. It's like every time you reveal a new clue, it's like, ah, oh, damn, that's why that makes sense. And as we got to moving towards uh, the Chernobyl aspects of the book, and uh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna desperately try and not give anything away at this point, uh, because we try very hard to run a no-spoiler show here. But as we got to the Chernobyl aspects of the book, and you made some comments about one of the uh, one of the groups always being known as exceedingly dumb. <laughs> and you went on and on about how everybody knew that they were dumb and how this person couldn't possibly have done this. Um, and it was just one of those moments of wonder in the book where we just kind of all went, wow, nice. And I, I was just, it was, it was just a moment where I just kind of sat back and went, nice reveal, really nice reveal. And for me as a reader, the book is full of those kind of nice reveal moments uh, for Conrad, for Willow Dean, uh, for Mose, for Herc, uh, all across the board for your characters, where there are these little moments of, really nice reveals um what what how do you make that happen as a writer so well first let me just step back one second there and say that i don't say that that the, the species involved is dumb some of the characters claim it uh, right. and it ties back into kind of one of the main themes of the book is that there's prejudice and prejudice is very often wrong more often, more, more often wrong than right. And so that character getting there sort of like, you know, sh being shown how intelligent and, uh, and and effective that character is, I think is one of the ways to uh, to disprove that. Uh, as far as the world building goes, um, before I started writing fiction, um, I actually spent some time being a game designer. And so when I world build, it's almost like working on the game. All the parts have to work together. You can't like make an element of the game that's gonna break the rest of it, right? And so when I'm coming up with a background, be it for a short story or for a novel, I really kind of have to spend a little extra time and think about what the rules are of that world. 
and what information will I reveal about those rules to the reader down the line so that I'm not breaking those same rules you know earlier on so I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like somewhere in book three I'm going to say something that completely contradicts what happened before right right, then, right right yeah right, I, I know what's going to happen in book three and so I can actually uh lay lay out those breadcrumbs now and I have there are things in book one that when you get to book three you'll be like oh that's what he was talking about it was it was from my point from the reader's vantage from the reader's point of view um it's a lot of times like throwing bread breadcrumbs at geese where it feels random but you know it isn't because it all just kind of comes together and it's leading you towards uh, a most satisfactory last quarter of the book well this kind of leads into something that i wanted to mention and it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned, Alex, that, you know, you, you've written short stories about this character. The whole beginning kind of, you know, it threw me a little bit because I'm reading it. I'm going, OK, OK, so this is a little vignette about uh, our main character. Here's another little vignette. And I'm going, interesting. OK, and I'm just thinking, you know, OK, these feel more like short stories. And then I'm reading these vignettes and each one of these vignettes, you know, tells me a little bit about the universe. It almost in a game sort of way, you know, it's like, here's a little taste of the universe. You Here's this little, you know, appetizer. This will also tell you what to expect. But the fun part is for a reader like myself is I've read all those vignettes and I'm going, OK, now two things are going to happen. These are just throwaways to get us interested in the world or as in your case. <laughs> Hang on to those, put those in your back pocket, because every single one of those little vignettes is going to mean something by the end, which I think is what Tom's implying about the geese, is that the, the all these little vignettes you did at the very beginning all are massively important when you get towards the end of the story. You know, everything right down from, you know, meeting the Druids and the Cabal, which when you for it, first read it feels like a vignette, just a little short story. Um, or is it vinaigrette? I'm not sure which. Anyway, but it's it's uh, it's it feels like <laughs> a story, but it is not. It is an important part of the rest of the story. And this is what I love about your writing is that you you take all these little things that, you know, you might wonder, you know, well, how is he going to you know, weave it in or is it just throw away? And it's definitely not throw away. And I just I have to say thank you for that. That was just brilliant writing right at the first very first half of the book. Well, thank you very much. Uh, one thing I have to admit right off the bat is those vignettes did start out as short stories. The two stories I that I wrote about the character, I did change some things around and, and smooth it out and like move, move things around, but they are incorporated into the early parts of the book. And so, and, and it's only natural that those things become important because the story grew up organically from, from those early stories of his. Plus some stuff that I've plotted out that I haven't even written down yet, so like like Conrad's origin story. Uh, so all these things kind of take a role in it, and I try to slowly introduce some of the things that uh, um, that I know about the character that I haven't had the chance to tell you, because I don't want to just stop the story, right? I, I don't want to stop telling you the story that I'm telling you, 
and just get go into the background or go into like uh you know do some kind of a, a snapback to flash flashback to like 20 years before um i don't like to do that i want to keep the plot moving and so i think that it gives me the opportunity by 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 being lazy and not wanting to do those things it also creates an opportunity for me to kind of very slowly dollop out some of this world building where uh, where it doesn't feel overwhelming and it doesn't feel like I'm just, okay, let me tell you about the history of, you know, how the dragons came into existence. And I'm going to spend 20,000 words doing that. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Like you may see a dragon's tail somewhere like 3,000 pages later. And I see a lot of that in fantasy. And I just wanted to do it differently. I, I wrote this uh, more... In the, the way that I would write a science fiction book than I would write a fantasy book in terms of the 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 pacing and the plotting, if that makes sense. It does. And and again, going to something else you said there, or it was it was implied, I've always felt that good magic, because I'm I'm a huge fantasy fan, good magic should have rules. It shouldn't just be and he waved his arm and a cow appeared. You know, it should have reason. It should what is it? What is what was the rule? Who was it that told us this rule, Dome? There's no free lunch. Oh, that that's an old Heinlein uh, quote. There's that's no Heinlein. such thing Thank as a you. free lunch. Yeah. And this applies in magic just as much as science fiction. And I love it. It's just because it's there should be there should be rules. There should be reasons why this is possible, why it happens. And it, it, and you've created rules here. You, they're all, you know, you at least you know what they are. Maybe you haven't told all of us the, all the rules, but those rules from the way you write, I can tell that there are rules in the background that you know what they are. Right. I do, but the characters don't necessarily. That's what I wanted. Right. To, I wanted to get away from the from from the world, you know, from a lot of the other books where, you know, uh, the the rules are laid out for the reader and the characters are generally hyper aware of them. And so they're just, all right, this is what I'm able to do. This is here. It's a little bit different. Magic is a little bit more wild. And I have the characters learning things about themselves and learning the things about how the world really works along with the reader, which I think is really important. And in a lot of stories, you get that character that, you know, like like Willow Dean in this book and, you know, uh, in, in others who are introduced to this world and they're the newbie. And through their eyes, the, the reader gets to find out what everybody else already knows. Otherwise, they're just telling each other things that they obviously know, right? Uh, so it's important to do that but in my case i wanted to make sure that even the main characters don't know the entire story and they get to find out along with you and the deeper you get into the converse, the more you're going to learn about those rules it gets to be really cool um when you realize that there's not a fragility to the universe that you're reading. And I guess what I mean by that is, uh, and it, it's really hard to explain what, what I mean by that. Um, in some fantasy and, and, and science fiction books, the lack of continuity leads to fragility. And that fragility means <clears throat> that there's a willing suspension of disbelief that goes away. 
Absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, what the writer, the, the writer's process, right? Because there's certain people, and I envy them, uh, that are what is called pantsers. They're able to just come up with an idea and they have no idea where they're going. They just start writing and the story just unfolds. Um, I can't do that. There are other people, uh, and those people are called plotters, and they have, they make really detailed notes and they kind of outline every single little bit. They know what, what's going to happen in every single chapter, every single scene until the end of the book. And I can't do that either. And so what I do. See, and that was my next question. You don't do that. Not at all. Uh, what I do is I have to know how the story ends. And again, this this is applicable not only to this novel, but to everything that I've written. When I sit down to write a short story, when I sit down to write a novella, whatever it is, I need to know where the story is going. And so I will kind of have, I will, I will sidetrack along the way and I will do exploratory writing and come up with cool things along the way. But to my mind, every scene, every chapter in some way needs to drive the story toward that ending that I've envisioned. And so it gives me, um, like, it gives me the guiding light at the, end, at the end of the journey, so to speak. And so when I'm writing, I can just go off on a tangent. I can come up with something that I completely didn't expect to put in a book at all. But while I'm doing that, there is at least that general sort of the North Star that I'm traveling toward. Okay, that 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 makes sense. That makes sense. In, in that, as long as you've got that that inner compass that lets you know where you're actually headed. Right, precisely. And that's, you know, uh, you know, I'm not saying that everybody else should write that way. Oh, no, no, not at all. Yeah, every writer needs to find the method that works for them. And for me, this has been so far, at least, I mean, you know, I've finished like three novels and a whole bunch of short stories and, and, and a novella and a few other things. But over that time, I've developed this method that works for me. And it may, you know, it may not be for everybody, but... Uh, uh, but I think that that's partly responsible for that combination of sort of tight plotting and and interesting things, that, which I actually have a term for that. I call them reader cookies. You have to feed the reader a cookie every few pages. And what I mean by that is it needs to be something where the reader can just sort of pause for half a second and go, wow, cool. So it could be a line of dialogue. It could be uh, a reveal about a character. It could be just a little aside that's fun. But something where the reader just kind of it stands out to them, you know, and I and, and you need to have those reader cookies consistently throughout the book, and then the reader will be very happy at the end. That's uh, you know, and, and and also very full of cookies. Now you didn't start out as a writer per se, did you? I started writing at thirty-five, so <laughs> a little bit later than than most people, I would say, but. I had a legitimate excuse. I didn't speak English. And so it was very, would have been very hard to write in English. I, I came to this country at 14, didn't, really didn't speak almost any English at all. Um, never imagined that I would get to the point where I would be able to write fiction professionally. And so once I learned the language well enough to actually be, be creative in it, I didn't give myself permission to start writing for a long time. 
and I regret that. I should. I wish I had started sooner. I, we, 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 we might have had this conversation, you know, ten years ago about this book, and and who knows what I'd be writing now. But uh, uh, but ultimately, it held me back for a long time because I just didn't believe that um, somebody for whom English is a third language can uh, uh, can hobble the words together well enough. And uh, you know, I'm glad that I've proven myself wrong and. Uh, um, certainly, there are some weaknesses to my writing, and it may need more love from the editor, from the copy editor, because of the language thing. But, uh, but it's, uh, um, it, you know, it, 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 in a way, it, the fact that I have that experience and knowledge of different cultures and other languages actually makes up for that by shifting my perspective a little bit and hopefully making the writing more interesting. I will go as far as to say, though, that if you hadn't told me that English was your third language, I would not have known from the writing. The writing felt like somebody who, you know, at least knew English better than I did. <laughs> and English is my first language. So you, you, you do a good job with the writing. The writing is very concise. It is very well done. The words are well chosen. You know, I say you don't, I don't see a lot of problems myself. So I think, you know, you, I think you've got that down pat. So. Uh, thank you. But if you, you should see the earlier drafts because I definitely <laughs> rely on the kindness of my beta readers and my copy editors. Now, they're still not terrible, but there's a lot of little mistakes that a native English speaker might not have made, such as not using the perfect past tense properly and, 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 and things like that. Uh, my vocabulary is great. I, I really have no complaints. But some of those little rules that, of, of English that don't exist in, you know, in, 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 in sort of in my native languages, are um, are still so I understand I understand them intellectually, and when I am engaged in the story and I'm thinking about pushing the story forward, and not about the grammar, uh, or the or you know or or or, you know, or the structure, I still manage to miss them. So there's probably more redrafting and more careful um, application that goes into my writing than for a lot of people. I'm a pretty slow writer, and that may be the reason because I have to really think a little bit deeper about how I want to, you know, structure my sentences, how I want to get to to the cadence that I'm trying to to achieve um, than than somebody who was who was born to it and who can just kind of breeze through it and has their, you know, their style a little bit. It's just as good, but maybe a little bit less hard one. And yet I don't see that as a terribly bad thing, uh, you know. I, I, there are much worse afflictions than that. So let me let me ask you a question about your publisher, who's also been on the show, Shahid Mahmood uh, at uh, Arc Manor Publishing, uh, whose uh, subprinting is uh, Kasich Sci-Fi and Fantasy. Uh, how did you get involved with these guys? So I was actually very fortunate to have made friends with uh, the writing hero and mentor of mine, Mike Resnick. Uh, Mike uh, writes or wrote, because unfortunately he passed away a few years back, uh, he wrote very much the type of humor that I like to write. And so we connected over that and we became fast friends. And at some point, Shahid invited Mike to edit a magazine for them called Galaxy's Edge magazine. So Mike actually solicited a story from me, and that was the second Conrad Brent story, and it appeared in the very first issue of Galaxy's Edge. 
So I have a long history with, with Arc Manor going back there, and it is through Mike that I met Shahid in person, and we also became friends. And so, um, and, and I'm friends with Leslie, who works for the company as well. So we kind of, I even before uh, I became published by them, uh, I would hang out with them at conventions. I would spend time at their booth at, uh, at, at, at Worldcon and things like that. Um, and I've always felt very much at ease with them. I felt like it's a friendly relationship. It's not, a, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't feel uncomfortable asking a question or, or making a suggestion or anything like that, as you might with uh, maybe with a different publisher. So, uh, so it actually worked out really, really well that that we were able to work together on the series. And I, I have to say that uh, they're really putting so much support and so much, uh, you know, uh, you know, so much effort and so much support behind this book that um, I would not have been able to do this, I think, with with too many other publishers, even even bigger ones. So, I, so I really, I'm really thankful to Shahid and to Leslie and, uh, um, you know, and and to, you know, the Arc Manor and Kazik as an entity for for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, it seems like they they seem like a great company to work for. They really do. Scratch that. Great people to work with. That's right. Yeah, I mean, they're very, like I said, very easygoing. We we enjoy each other's company. We, we you know, we hang out uh, outside of just being, uh, you know, just just j- j- just being coworkers essentially. Like, uh, sure. if that's the right term. I mean, I'm I'm not in the company. I'm not a member. I'm not I'm not a part of Arc Manor. But uh, you know, as 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 a as a contributor, somebody who has written. Many short stories that they published and uh, and edited an anthology for them, and now have this first book coming out with them. I kind of feel like uh, a part of the extended family. You know, Alex, I can't thank you enough at any number of levels for uh, for joining us tonight. This book is just pure fun. Number one, uh, number two, this book is just a great read. And number three, um, th- this book is is like mind crack. You you can't get enough of it. <laughs> and <clears throat> I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it, uh, how much I love the characters, how much I love the idea, uh, how much Cam and I have been talking about it all week, and how much we can't wait to have you back with book two. Well, thank you so much. And as I as I was saying earlier, book two is written. So it's just a matter of how well this does. I mean, as much as uh, Shahid is a good friend, he needs to be able to see a profit on this. So he needs to be able to sell the books first. So as long as The Middling Affliction does well, the sequel will see the light of day. I would guess in about a year, but I can't make an official announcement because we got to see the numbers. So um, those of you listening out there, go pre-order a copy. You'll be helping uh, the publisher out. You'll be helping me out. And you will be helping the host of this podcast out because they will get to read book two. Well, when the when when uh, you click on, click on the link on, on the podcast, it'll bring you right to Amazon where you can pick up a copy of the book. My suggestion is you do so because uh, it's a fun read and uh, it's a great author. Alex Schwartzman, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And uh, please, you're welcome back anytime. It's my great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. In part two of tonight's show, we're going to talk to Uncle Jason Charamella, 
who's the writer of the C is for Cthulhu project. If you've never heard of it, man, you're missing something really cool. Uh, we're going to talk about their current Kickstarter, the Cthulhu Bruhaha. I've always wanted to say Bruhaha in a show, and I've finally gotten to do that. Uh, how they got into it and turn Lovecraftian horror into a children's cottage industry. Jason, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, man. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, well, um, I got an email from uh, my buddy Tyler at uh, Comics Tribe, and he said, check these guys out, and I did. And I checked out your Kickstarter the night before Christmas, a C is for Cthulhu holiday tale. And I just kind of went, oh, shit, shut up and take my money. <laughs> oh, thank you. I totally did, man. It, it wasn't. It was one of those things. How quickly can I log in? Um, <laughs> it, it is. It is. I mean, how did I not know about you guys? And it's like I thought I knew about you guys, but I'd never seen this before. And and you and and artist Joshua Jane's have come up with. C is for Cthulhu, a project that takes one of H.P. Lovecraft's most horrifying beings and turns it into a cuddly little children's toy thing. Okay, first of all, where the hell did this come from? Well, I'll, I'll start with a little bit of a correction. Um, okay. The Seas for Cthulhu was um, created by myself and Greg Murphy, was the original artist on the first few books. Uh, did all of the concepting and full illustrations on the first few books. And then Greg, uh, he ended up taking a position with Mattel. And when you work for big toy companies, you're not allowed to do anything uh, for anybody else. So we ended up uh, getting with Joshua Janes um, through Tyler, and he had seen his work somewhere and brought him onto the project. And he's done uh, the last two books, and we honestly couldn't be happier with uh, the work that. Oh, you know, it's he's the been cutest stuff ever, yeah. man. Yeah. Nice yeah, job. The genesis of the books and the brand came from basically being a dad and, you know, wanting something like this for my kids, you know, wishing that I had had an alphabet book or stories that were not necessarily edgier, but definitely dealt with themes that I was more interested in, you know, rather than you know, <laughs> two, monkey, two monkeys and, you know, rolling balls and red wagons, you know, kids love monsters and, and things that are, you know, insane and ridiculous looking. So I couldn't find anything like that. And so I thought we should do something. There's got to be a lot of parents out there that are like me that, you know, want to have these kinds of stories for their kids. So uh, Tyler put it together with uh, Tyler is the um, publisher at Comics Tribes. He put it together and got Greg for handling the art on the first book. And here we are. I think we're eight years later. And and I remember, and and Kat and Cam and I were talking about this, uh, actually before we came on the air, 
uh, about seeing some of these books a long time ago. Um, the the original uh, C is for Cthulhu. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, been about eight years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know. When I think back on it, it's you know it's a blink, but yeah, it's been it's been a while. We've we've had quite a few projects in between. So so you you guys with with those crazy idiots over at Comics Tribe put together <laughs> the night before Christmas a Sieve is for Cthulhu holiday tale, which is a children's uh, uh, board book, essentially. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's a the... Christmas tale uh, um, for 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 children <laughs> starring Cthulhu, yeah, which was funded in less than 10 hours, had 32,000 on day one, yeah, and yeah, 520 backers on day one. Okay, yeah, we, so first of all, hey, nice job. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's, you know, it really is a testament to, you know, the really the incredible visuals that Joshua produces, but also our fan base is unbelievable. Um, you know, really interactive, always sharing photographs of their little ones with, you know, our books and our plush toys and our blankets and all this stuff. And it's, it's just such a great community. And every time we run a Kickstarter, they really show up. It's great. Well, holy crap, they sure did this time. Because yeah. as of right now, uh, <clears throat> you are <laughs> over 50, uh, 200% funded. You have over 850 backers. And you have 10 days to go. When this airs, you'll have like eight days to go. You'll have about a week to go. So, I mean, you guys are well on track to doing an incredible, an incredible amount here. And, of course, what this does is it sells this book and then sells a lot of other stuff, too, because you have some great stretch goals here as well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, we always like to, you know, it is a small company and getting these items produced is unbelievably expensive uh, when you're getting plush made and prototyped and books printed. So what we generally will do is when we run a Kickstarter, we, as part of our stretch goals, we will activate, you know, other products in that so that we can get everything done at once. And then it allows us to offer additional items that we normally wouldn't be able to or wouldn't generally run on an individual Kickstarter. So it's great. So our fans get, you know, some new products or they, um, you know, we do, we're able to do reorders on things that might have been out of production. Uh, and then, you know, the cherry on top is always the newest book or plush or, you know, whatever we happen to be offering at the time. And I'm looking at what you've got, what got to, um, your next 
next one is at 57,500 and Uncle Jason will be reading the book to us. <laughs> yeah, we'll do an audio recording um, for it, which is always fun. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic, actually. Yeah. I think that would be a, a lot of fun to hear. So here's hoping we can, you know, get, uh, what is it, 2,500 more just so we can yeah. get that. Actually, not even quite that, actually. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get to 60,000 because I want the Christmas card. That's all. <laughs> I want the Christmas card. Oh, yeah, definitely the Christmas card. And then what is it, 75? Uh, the, you'll be bringing back the, uh, the big 12 red. inch. Yep. Yeah. And at 100,000, a lot of question marks. Yeah, not quite sure yet. All right. So you're going to leave us. What I want to know is why we can't one. get the 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 Christmas cards on the website yet. Is it? As we a, should be uh, able to get uh, like an eight pack of the Christmas cards on the website. I think that would be the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, I think that not too long after this campaign ends, um, well, and I'm not going to say not too long because they, they would still have to be printed and packed, but those should be available. Sweet. So that would be cool. Yeah. Captain Cam may actually have to even, send even, Christmas even cards. For, <laughs> even, even for a non-Catholic like me, I'd buy them. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're great. Who doesn't want a Cthulhu Christmas card in the mail? I mean that makes everybody. Oh, sick. I know a number of people who would get them if I bought them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, then after I I said shut up and take my money and and uh, threw it at the Kickstarter, I went to your website and played another game. Game of shut up and take my money. <laughs> um, well, and there's a lot of. St oh man, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> a six-inch glow-in-the-dark uh, Cthulhu baby plush. Oh, those are fun. And because they, I mean, uh, they, you've never seen something glow in the dark like these. I mean, they're they could be a light source. It's unbelievable how brightly they glow. And then I have a friend of mine who's getting the baby on board sticker. Oh, nice. Very For fun. her car. <laughs> that would be you, Wendy. So if you're listening, I want you to know for your new sports car, you're getting the Cthulhu baby on board sticker. So, I mean, you know, so like when I said you turned Cthulhu into cottage industry, you really did. Yeah, it's been it's been a you know, year after year, we've slowly added new products to the line. Um, all of them are really well thought out. And, you know, as a team, we kind of agree what we're going to do. It has to be something that we think is going to be evergreen. That's really important to us. We want to have products that are, um, you know, there year after year that people become familiar with and, you know, tell their friends about and it just becomes part of you know our our, our nerd culture community um so yeah every year we're adding you know two at least two items uh, sometimes three and you know here we are like i said eight years later so it's we've built quite you know quite a nice little uh, selection of products 
and in the first. It's just wonderful to me how you found this niche in a place where it doesn't exist. Mm. (laughs) And that's the beauty of this. It really doesn't exist here. And you decided, I'm making one. Yeah, like I said, it's, I just felt like I can't be the only dad who would have wanted these for his kids. Or, you know, it's not, to me, it just seemed there's a big hole there. And, you know, we, with the concepts that we had, we were in a great position to, to fill it and, you know, change the way that parents who liked monsters and liked, you know, science fiction and, and horror changed the way that they interacted with their kids uh, for story time and bedtime and new book, you know, we're hoping to add, you know, people add this to their holiday traditions. That's a big part of what we want. Uh, Always, every time I'm thinking of a book that we're going to do, I want it to, I want it to be so that 20 years from now, the kid that had that book being read to him has fond memories of that book and is, you know, the way that our kids now think about books like The Hungry Caterpillar or Goodnight Moon, where you have these warm fuzzies about, you know, thinking about the time spent with your parents with these books. And that's really the goal is I want I want it to be part of people's traditions, whether it's learning the alphabet or going to bed with our bedtime story or something that comes out around the holidays where, you know, kids really look forward to for a certain number of years while they're little, but hearing this story and it becomes just part of their tradition. And I mean, you, you, you certainly have picked a a topic that you, cause you mentioned the term evergreen now. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that are going to listen to this and correct me, but if I remember correctly, Cthulhu's coming up on his hundredth birthday. I mean, well, hundredth birthday of being published. We all know he's much older than that. Although he doesn't look <laughs> a day over twenty um, thousand million. Great skin. Yes, yes, great skin. Great, great green skin. But you know, he you, moisturizes. Gotta, Leave him alone. Exactly. In in the blood of of of, of human tears. But, exactly. You know, but it's you've got this this wonderful thing and and you and so many other authors that we've had on the show that have taken the fertile ground that Lovecraft laid out there and you've expanded on it so wonderfully each in your own fantastic and wonderful direction from people that have you know really stayed true to what Lovecraft wrote to just people you know that have decided to take it in their own direction and then people like you who've written kids' books to get kids interested in Lovecraft. And as as a Lovecraft fan, um, yes, I know, I've said some things in the past, but I am not taking those back. But as a a, a moderate Lovecraft fan, (laughs) yes, I have. Yes. But yes, it's one of those things where I am so glad we have someone like you that's, you know, making something like this for children. You know, like you said, I mean, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. 
things that are big and scary. And there's plenty of kids out there like me. I think I'd have loved this if I was a kid, if somebody handed me my own little Cthulhu. Yeah, same. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, that's part of the goal is to make things that we would have enjoyed. And, you know, my kids are grown now, but I, I know that you know, if we had had these books when they were little, they would have loved them. Look, we know you're a fan of horror. If you're listening, we know you're out there. We know you're a fan of Lovecraft. We know you're out there. We know you probably got kids. And you can't read to them from the mountains of madness. You can't. <laughs> you just can't. Well, I mean, I know you want to. I did. <laughs> <laughs> what you can read to them is The Night Before Christmas, A Sea is for Cthulhu Holiday Tale. Check out the links in the podcast. Then go to their website, check out the Kickstarter, check out Uncle Jason Charamella, who's, uh, thank you so much, man, for joining us. And when new stuff comes out, uh, I'd like you to come back and talk about that as well. Oh, Cam Dome, I really appreciate you guys having me on. This is great. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is made possible with the support of Granite Con and Double Midnight Comics, Plastic City Comic Con, the Upper Valley Comic Expo, Dreamforge Anvil and Dreamforge Magazine, and Comic Art House. If you're looking for a great gift idea, may we suggest Sci-Fi Saturday Night's anthology My Peculiar Family, available on Amazon. The audiobook is also available on Audible. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. Check out all of his amazing work at robwattsonline.com. Our outro music was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their discography is available on Bandcamp. Thank you so much, Jojo. This is Dome saying shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. So unless it's daytime, good night, everyone. This is my brother, Yako.